Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On this day in which we commemorate and celebrate the baptism of our Lord Jesus, we think of these words of St. Luke where he reports, When all of the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. According to parenting expert named Jean Tracy, most parents, past and present, are too general in the things that they say to their children to affirm any confidence in their children. It's hard to believe because it seems to be in our day that parents are most affirming of their children, but nevertheless this is something that she feels to be true. In an article that she wrote on effective parenting, she said, Are your affirmations too general? Would your children be better motivated by more detail? Would you like your children to feel valued? Then learn how to create the best affirmations for motivating and for valuing your child. And how do you do that? And she goes then on in the column to tell you how you do what she's saying we need to do to be more specific. That's what she says, be more specific with your affirmations. And then she cites a few examples. And she says, for example, your, your daughter is the lead character in a school play. On the way home, don't just say, good job, but be specific. And say, you spoke loud and clear and with great expression. Your gestures showed me what you were saying, and your facial expressions fit your words and gestures. You were good. Or your son. It's a home run in a baseball game. On the way home, don't just give him some general affirmation like, good game. But she says, be specific. And say, when you smacked that ball, I knew it was a homer. Your whole team cheered as you raced around the bases. I couldn't stop screaming myself, you won the game today. Specific affirmations. Of course, interestingly, there is no advice given in the article as to how to affirm a daughter who totally forgot her lines and froze like a pillar of salt on stage. Or a son, and what to say to him after he struck out twice and was tagged after tripping over second base or missed three fly balls in outer field. Nevertheless, I think the point is good that this child counselor makes. Affirmations are important. Affirmations are important not just for children, I suppose, but for any of us of any age, as long as they're genuine, as long as they're not too exaggerated. Important because they tell our children as we affirm what they do, they tell our children that they can indeed take on the challenges that they're going to confront in life, that they can indeed take on the responsibilities that are going to be placed upon their shoulders. Important enough even for the Son of God because that's what we see in our text for today. We see God the Father in the baptism of our Lord Jesus at the River Jordan. We see God the Father affirming God the Son. His only begotten Son, His Son who here at the River Jordan is about to embark upon the specific task for which His Father had sent Him into this world, 
That mission that John the Baptist in his typically forthright fashion spoke about so clearly and identified so plainly when he pointed to the Lord Jesus coming down river's edge and said, behold, there he is, folks. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all the world. All that the ancient prophets had prophesied, all that the first Christmas had then delivered to Mary and to Joseph and to the shepherds that were out there in the field. All that old Simeon, standing there in the temple, held in his arms when he said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. All that the wise men were led by a star from afar to behold, all of that now is right here at the Jordan edge. 30 years of old, standing there to do what he alone could do, standing and ready and prepared to do what neither mortal nor angel could possibly do, or a task that assumed for him just this past week. I, I watched an interesting television. In fact, many of you, I'm sure, have seen the classic by Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. Watched the last episode of it again this past week, where Frodo, for those of you who have watched it, the hero hobbit carries the golden ring that he has to carry, preparing to throw it and toss it into mortar's fire. And the whole movie is focused on him and what he does. And Tolkien was a, a Christian who was paradising here and, and making comparisons to what Christ had done as well. But it's only a comparison because it can't at all be at all alike to what Christ had done because Christ carried something far heavier than a golden ring as this little hobbit did. Christ was carrying something far heavier even than a wooden cross, whose crossbeam was probably 75 pounds, but whose entirety, if he carried indeed the whole cross, was 300 pounds plus. Christ carried something much heavier than a cross. He carried something much weightier than a golden ring about his neck. Christ carried your sins, my sins, the sins of the entire world. That's what Christ bore in himself sins which if they had to be paid for and were going to be paid for required not only the caring but also the bearing they had to be suffered for they had to require the death of the bearer whose value then had to exceed that of any others that's the task that lay before the lord jesus that unenviable task that no other man could perform that lonely task which only Jesus could accomplish because in all the history of all the world, there never had been in any shire of Hobbitland or in any shore throughout the world, there has never been, there will never be anyone like Jesus who could bear the sins of all the world. You see, the sin bearer had to be more than a mere man. To be sure, he had to be man so that he could suffer and that he could die for man, but he also had to be God in order that the sacrifice that he would make for the sins of the world would be sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. Luther asks, what good would be the suffering and the death of the Lord Christ to me if he were merely a man such as you or I? Then he, Luther said, would not have been able to overcome the devil and death and sin any more than we can. Like us, he would have been far too weak for them and could not then have helped us. Therefore, 
We must, Luther says, have a Savior who is true God and a Lord over sin, death, the devil, and hell. And yet he must indeed be true man. And so when once asked what he would say to the person who would say to him, as so often people would, here is a God who is not man. Here is a God I've got who never was man. To that person, Luther said that he would say, Mir aber des Gottes nicht, I want no such God. For this would leave me the poorest sort of Savior, the poorest sort of Christ. No, he has to be both God and man, perfect God, perfect man, in human flesh subsisting, just like the creed that we confess has long said, and here at the River Jordan stands such a one. Here stands the only one who would ever meet that qualification for your salvation and for mine. Here stands the one identified by John and then baptized by John. Here, where Jesus is divinely affirmed by God the Father, here's where he is not only affirmed by God the Father, but inaugurated actually into his holy office as the singular savior of the world for the public to see. Here, Luther says, he's ordained into his ministry by his heavenly father. Here at the River Jordan, he was anointed as the teacher and the king of all Christendom. Here he received a genuine doctor's cap and a royal crown, namely the Holy Spirit that came upon him in the form of a dove. And here he is installed, Luther says, as the eternal king and the eternal high priest with these words from heaven. You see, here scripture tells us the heavens opened wide. And here the holy trinity unveiled itself in a most unusual way where God himself allows himself here to be seen in the person of Jesus Christ because here God the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in bodily form like a son, like a dove, and here God the Father declares in a voice that all of heaven and all of earth and hell could hear, thou art my beloved son with thee, I am well pleased. The Trinity makes itself known and the Trinity God the Father as well and the Holy Spirit makes it evident that they are well pleased with what God the Son is about to do and well pleased with what God the Son even to that point had done. Well pleased indeed because in all the history of all the world since Adam's fall no one had been found to stand pure and innocent before God the Father. Not any son of Adam born from the beginning of the world until the last daughter of Eve, born even today. Not a one, on his own, could stand holy, pure, and innocent before God the Father except this one, his only begotten Son. The only one who could stand sinless before the Lord here at the River Jordan on that day so long ago. No wonder that God is well pleased. Well, please, because here in this man is the one, on the one hand, who's born of Mary. Here is Jesus Christ, yet God, fleshed out. The fullness of the deity, dwelling bodily in him, St. Paul says. 
Here in Jesus Christ is humanity perfected. Here in Jesus Christ is God and man inseparably united. Here is the one scripture says who has been tempted in all ways that we are yet without sinning. The one it says who is holy and innocent and sinless and undefiled, who is exalted above all of the heavens, well pleased. Can you see why God the Father is well pleased with what the River Jordan stands before him? Well pleased in his Son, who then of his own free will, without any parental and paternal coercion of any sort is ready to execute the plan of salvation that was determined at the Council of the Holy Trinity even before the foundation of all of the world. He stands here ready to bear in his own body the sin of the world which God is not at all well pleased with but now places willingly upon his Son. Remember what the Lord Jesus told John the Baptist when John was so reluctant to baptize him? Jesus said, permit it. Let it be. Permit it, for in this way it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. You see, through his baptism, Jesus sets out to fulfill our righteousness, to make us righteous by his atoning work on the cross, because that's what we're baptized into, into the death and into the resurrection of Christ. And that's why scripture says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that in him we might be the righteousness of God. To fulfill all righteousness Jesus in his baptism formally and publicly sets out to make us righteous through his sacrifice upon the cross and through our baptism into his death that we heard the choir sing of this morning he formally and he publicly makes us righteous. For in baptism, his righteousness is placed upon us, even as upon the cross, our sins are placed upon him. As one of our Lutheran hymns puts it so beautifully, within the Jordan's sacred flood, the heavenly lamb in meekness stood, that he of whom no sin was known might cleanse his people of their own. So you see, so through, through water and through his word and the spirit descending with it, God the Father long ago affirmed his relationship to his only begotten Son and set him on a course of his saving work among us. And so also, through water and the word today, just like through water and the word so long ago, Christ accomplished his work, so also today, among us, through water and the word. That same Christ is accomplishing the same work of making you his own, and claiming you as his own, and marking you as his own, and affirming you as his own, and setting you then on that course that ultimately ends up in eternal life. What a blessing it is for us, even as it was for John, to know that we too have stood, even as he did, at the river's edge, and in the water with our Lord Jesus Christ. You've been there. In the water with the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as John was. So also we have been there. But a few months ago all kinds of excitement stirred the scientific community because water was discovered on the moon. Remember hearing about that? I think it was September or October sometime in there. 
Why all the excitement? Because previously it had been determined and declared that the moon was bone dry. But science was wrong. They've now discovered that there is water there. Not much to be sure. Doesn't appear easy to come by. You see, it's not liquefied water and gathered into pools or ponds as it is here on Earth. It has to be extracted from the surface soil that is there upon the moon. In fact, according to scientists, quote, the average amount of water if extracted near the moon's poles is about a quart of water per ton of water soil, of surface soil. For, for soil, in fact, that's near the equator of the moon, only about four tablespoons of water is believed to be present in every ton of soil. That's not much. And that's why Jim Green, the director of Planetary Science Division of NASA, says, quote, keep in mind that even the driest deserts on the Earth have more water than are at the poles and the surfaces of the moon. And still, says Dr. Chris Welch, the, uh, the uh, uh, astronautics and space systems expert at Kingston University in London, he says, if there is water in the moon, in whatever form it might be, then we have a potential reservoir that could be used for drinking or for making into hydrogen and oxygen, which can be used as a rocket propellant. Also, of course, we can use the oxygen to breathe, and that would be nice. Water in the moon. Water in the River Jordan. Water in a simple font. What's the connection, you say? Well, there's an old adage that's recognized by both science and by scripture. Where there's water, there's life. The potential for life yet to be or the sustenance of life that already is. Don't underestimate what God has done and what God continues to do through simple water. And most certainly, don't underestimate what God has done and continues to do through baptismal water. Luther, in a sermon on the baptism of our Lord, put it so eloquently, and he said, to be sure, baptism is water. But today, some people are saying that's all it is, is just plain water. Well, he says, the devil take them. My dog, Topol, which interestingly means blockhead, my dog Topol or any wild boar and any cow knows what plain water will do. But what else is there, Luther says? Without doubt in baptism we also get God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and all the angels. So it's no longer plain water, but water in which the Son of God bathes. Water in which the Holy Spirit hovers. Water over which God the Father preaches just as he did on the day of our Lord's baptism. That's what baptism is. Not when it is simply water, but when the words are added in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Luther says this is still true today. When I baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit today, then today also are present the Son who sanctified baptism with his body in the water, the Holy Spirit who sanctified baptism with his presence, and the Father who sanctified baptism with his voice. 
Now who will despise that? Who will call the water of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit plain water, Luther asks. Can't we see how God has flavored this water? Add sugar and other ingredients to water, and it's no longer just water, but a delicious claret, Bruno, or something of the sort, Luther says. So why would you try to separate the word from the water in baptism? Never. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in baptismal water. Therefore, it is the bath water of Christ. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the preaching of God the Father, and this makes it water that indeed will take away your sins and death and every sadness, a precious ointment, a divine medication, because God has stirred himself into it. The Father can bring a person to life, and God the Father is in the water. That's why it is the genuine aquavit, aqua, water, vitae, life. That's why it is the genuine water of life, Luther says. The end of his quote. You see, where there is water, water with the word of God, there is indeed life, eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.